Welcome to the RidgeCast, a tool created to have conversations about topics we can't always cover on a Sunday. Our desire is for you to become equipped to follow Jesus and be mobilized to pursue His kingdom. We hope today's dialogue takes you one step further in your discipleship journey. Now here is this week's episode. Hey everyone, welcome back to the RidgeCast. My name is David. I'm so excited to be back with you guys. Thank you guys so much uh, for tuning in um, each month, checking out what we're saying here uh, on the RidgeCast. But I'm so excited um, for today's episode. I've got one of my uh, oldest friends joining us on the podcast today. I want to welcome for the very first time, uh, Mr. Randy Price to the RidgeCast. Randy, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Uh, thanks so much for having me on the podcast, David. I'm really excited to uh, dive into this conversation with you. Yeah, so Randy is joining us from the World Wide Web, the fantastic internet. He's joining us from quite a distance. Randy, where are you jumping in the conversation today from? Yeah, so I live in Deerfield, Illinois, which is about 30 minutes north of Chicago. Um, I am currently in my apartment on the campus of Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, where I am a master's student. Man, so jumping in um, from way far away from us, but still so glad to have you uh, on today, Randy. Um, Just a little bit of background on Randy. Uh, Me and Randy became friends a long time ago. We're both going to Liberty University uh, and undergrad there, but uh, Randy has so far gone on to surpass me in academic excellence. Uh, (laughs) Randy not only has his undergrad from Liberty, but he also holds a Master of Arts in Philosophical Apologetics from Houston Baptist University. Uh, He's got his Master of Arts in Systematic Theology from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, um, where he's joining us from today. Um, He's got articles published in a few journals, Haythrop Journal, Expository Times, Perichoresis Theological Journal. Um, So that's exactly three times as many journals that I've been published in, <laughs> which is zero. Uh, but like I said, <laughs> me and Randy go way back. Uh, we lived on the same hall back at LU. And those were yeah, good days, fact, weren't they? Yeah, David was actually my RA my freshman year of college at Liberty. Um, and I think I might still have some outstanding fines that he issued against me. But that's okay because there's still pranks I pulled against him that he'll never know about. The many finds and the many really, really great uh, pranks uh, that went on at LU. But uh, Randy, it's just, I'm so glad, uh, like I've already said, to be having this conversation with you today. And um, man, just really been impressed uh, by your work and um, man, just how far that you've gone uh, in the academic circle and where you continue to go because you're in the middle of uh, uh, trying to figure out where you're going to get your PhD, right? Yeah, so I'm uh, applying to PhD programs right now and in the process of hearing back. Some have been positive, some have been uh, less positive, Um, but that's the goal for next year. I'm currently working on um, a Master's of Arts in Church History, Um, and the reason for that is last year I'd applied to PhD programs, but it didn't work out. Um, So then this is kind of like a holdover degree, Um, something to do while I work and take a pause. Um, and it's been fun. And since then, my research interests have changed quite a bit. I don't think three years ago, I thought I'd be researching theological ethics and technology, like what we're going to talk about today. Um, but the reason I got into that was the first time I was doing these rounds of applications, I had a really interesting, but 
very unpractical idea for uh, something in related to philosophy and theology. And I had a conversation with uh, my uncle uh, maybe over a year ago now, I think, and he said, how is that ever going to help people? And I did not know how to answer that. Uh, so then when I was looking for new topics this time around, I thought, man, what do people need help with now? And there, there's certainly a lot of things, especially in the church that we need help with, but technology seemed to be a really under-researched area for applying Christian theological ethics. Um, and so I just started picking up the few resources that were out there and kind of developing my own ideas and doing my own research. And uh, it's really blossomed and become really interesting for me. Yeah, I think as a pastor, that's something that I'm super interested in uh, as well, but obviously is not something that, at least at this point, is really, I would say, part of like the pedigree, what you study uh, when you're going to seminary and things like that. Um, you know, we do a lot of work in ancient history, a lot of work in ancient languages, a lot of work in uh, systematic theology, biblical theology, all those things that you would expect. Um, but it seems to me um, what I've discovered more and more is how quickly and exponentially uh, invasive technology is becoming uh, into our day-to-day uh, life. Um, so I'm really, that's why I was really interested in having this conversation and um, why you were uh, one of the first people I thought it would be great um, to have on and talk more about that. So um, like you said, w- when it comes to technology and ethics, I think those are two things maybe we generally don't think about uh, at the same time. I think sometimes we generally think about technology as kind of of benign uh, or it's just kind of like something that's just like a net neutral uh, out there in the world. It's just kind of a tool that can be used for good or bad purposes. Is that a good way to think about um, ethics or to think about its relationship to technology from your perspective? Yeah, I I think disjointing those things is really problematic. I think everything in our world is sort of a subject of ethical consideration. Um, And technology has such deep and lasting effects in our lives. And I I really like the phrase that you used um, a minute ago, that it's increasingly invasive in our lives. And you also made the point that this isn't something that pastors are typically trained to consider. Um, It's something that we often don't think about until we get scared. Sure. Um, whether yeah. that's in healthcare with our kids or anything. Um, so in light of that, I wanted to lead off with a, a quote from a guy who lived a long time before we had computers and AI and phones and weird stuff like that. Um, he's a Christian philosopher. His name's Blaise Pascal, if you've ever heard of him. Um, and he, he has this uh, really interesting work called the Pensas, which is really just a collection of his notes because he died long before he could uh, publish a book. But in that, in the opening pages of that, of that work, um, he writes this: "Knowledge of science will not console me for ignorance of morality in time of affliction, but knowledge of morality will always console me for ignorance of science." And what he's getting at there isn't that we should be ignorant of science and science technology being a branch of science, um, but simply that ethical considerations aren't waiting for us to catch up. Um, And we need to have a strong grasp of our moral groundings, especially as Christians, what scripture says about morality and ethics, um, so that we can be wise as we face really unpredictable new realities about where our society is heading as it becomes increasingly infused with technology and perhaps um, even fully integrated with technology, with things like AI and the metaverse. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think it's like, you know, on one hand, I'm afraid that some people might 
begin to approach technology and think that, you know, what we should do is just completely jettison it or maybe like retreat from it, Mm -hmm. you know, sort of like almost like a monastic way uh, to think about it. When I say monastic, Mm -hmm. I'm just thinking, um, you know, think like a monk or whatever. We're going to retreat to the countryside uh, or to the hills. And yes, like that Rob Gere Benedict option style. Sure, sure, sure. Um, And, you know, in some ways it's like technology is what is enabling me and you to have this conversation. (laughs) <laughs> right now and mm-hmm. technology is yeah. what's going to enable other people to listen to this conversation down the road whether they're driving around in their car or they're on a run right now or maybe they're just picking up uh you know doing chores around the house um, while their kids are at school or something like that so mm-hmm. um it i think like you said it's it's discovering what is the way to engage with this but more maybe a deeper question is what's the ethical or the right or wrong way um, or what are the guidelines um, for engaging with technology that we need to consider? Is that kind of what you're saying, or mm-hmm. am I getting off base? Uh, no, I, th- I think that's right. You summarized it pretty well. Yeah, I really like what you said there about how it's becoming um, increasingly involved, you know, integrated in the life, and even some some ways uh, when we begin to talk about AI and stuff like that, maybe fully integrated. But let's start maybe before we touch on AI. Um, with what I think is probably the most common usage of technology that I see that is actually, I think very harmful for our spiritual formation. And that's our relationship to um, phones, mobile devices, smart devices. Mm-hmm. What are, what are your thoughts kind of around that? Yeah. Um, so I think it, when talking about any sort of technology yeah, and including our phones, right. I, th- I think our reactions to it, tell us more, less about the technology itself, more about our hopes and fears um, that are kind of brought to the brought to the forefront by the use and prevalence of that technology. Um, so, right, like a long time ago when phones were just really rudimentary household devices that you used to call people, they weren't very scary. But now that they host thousands of apps, terabytes worth of data, um, and give us just access to a worldwide community and in some ways it's a miracle but in some ways it's like a living hell too um yeah I've i heard, think we've seen how oh yeah, go ahead i was yeah. gonna say i think I, I mean i've heard people compare when steve jobs put the iphone in everyone's hands it was like gutenberg's press again it was that mm-hmm. that level of innovation yeah yeah it certainly is one of the most um uh, retrospectively, we look back on it as one of the most consequential inventions. And even with that, like now the smartphones that if you have an iPhone or you have an AI in your pocket at all times too, ever since Siri came, I think with the generation four yeah. iPhone generation four or five. Yeah. Um, but like you said before, though, it's also this sort of technology that allows us to have this conversation um, from thousands of miles away. I think even like our friendship, so me and David, of our group chat of friends from Liberty um, that we've kept up for years. And I might not have those friendships today if it weren't for my phone. I could have easily fallen away. And I think even different, well, like all of us had different relationships to each other. Like I don't think David even knew our friend uh, Darrell before the group chat, um, but now they, they're they good friends because of it. And we've been able to sustain that through the use of our phones. Um But then when we talk about it, like being kind of a substitute for human relationships or something that we hide behind, uh, it becomes increasingly nefarious and destructive, especially for our spiritual formation. Is that something that you think um, 
is becoming more common as, as we've grown more connected, integrated uh, with technology. It's actually um, eroding our ability to have physical embodied relationships, social relationships. I think it, it certainly can and has, um, but I don't want to get overly critical. I think, you know, during COVID, right, we all made all these accommodations for online church services. Um, and I think rightfully so, we needed to do that. Um, but then before that, right, there were online church services. Um, there were online spiritual communities. And I th- think we were rightly critical of them as at least presenting them as a substitute, sure. right, for sure. uh, embodied community. But then I think of like, I, I had an uncle who was really unhealthy for years. He passed away about a year ago, but um, he was able to watch uh, the church that I grew up at um, from from his bed. Um, and that's a wonderful thing. But we've also seen cases where uh, it's a substitute for embodied community. And I don't think that that's kind of what the scriptural message is calling us to. I think we need to really love embodied community. I mean, like embodied in like a communal sense um, that we're there and present with each other because our bodies are the good creation of God that we share with other people. Um, and I think, so, you know, psychology, psychology and bi- bi- biologists will tell us that like the sensations you get with online community aren't as like formative or conducive to your flourishing as you do from these online ones. Um, and then another thing I think too, is just the, the capacity to fake your identity, sure. um, online is so much easier than in person. And I don't mean like, like doing weird stuff like catfishing people. I mean, uh, just presenting yourself as having what you take to be a good life when it's really not sure. what's going on. Like, for instance, for me, like I, I struggle with my weight. I'm a little bit overweight. Every picture I post myself online is from the waist up or even usually from the chest up. And it's like, I wonder why do I do that? It's because in some ways I'm like ashamed of my body and I can then present a fake version of myself to people online. And then you see this with like Instagram influencers all the time. Like now on like Instagram reels, there's videos of people videoing Instagram influencers doing weird stuff. I don't know if you've ever come across this, but like a typical Instagram influencer is always on vacation. Right. They're always working out. They look really good. But then like people go around and try to video them, like doing just thousands of endless takes of right. Mundane to try to get the perfect get take. Perfect yeah. Shot. And it's when you see it from that lens, it looks so unhealthy, but then it's, but when you don't see that side, it's easy to kind of, it's easy for them to present themselves as perfect and it's easier for us to want to desire that life for ourselves. Yeah. Cause that's, I mean, that's kind of what it's doing, right? Is it's, it's selling us a vision for what, for what the good life is. And I used to, man, I used to think about that all the time when I was a young adults pastor It's like Instagram is the high, everyone else's highlight reel. And you get on Instagram to, to look at how much happier and better off everyone is than you. And then it was mm-hmm. like, you would get on Twitter to figure out what should make you angry that day and then you would get on facebook to find out what your parents were mad about (laughs) that day because it was like up until a few years ago i don't know maybe facebook is making kind of a a comeback but um it was like man everyone that was under 35 was like fleeing from facebook at least interacting on it and going more on Mm -hmm. instagram and twitter but yeah Yeah, i I mean mean, it's interesting that like the trajectory in that too has become like facebook used to be and still is like longer form posts, more like diverse community, but then like the move to like Twitter and Instagram and then 
Vine, rest in peace, Vine, you know, right. TikTok. It's like these shorter clips, these tighter sound bites, snappier and sassier comments as we go. And it's like, it's even, it just takes like kind of the narrative of our, of our life and just breaks it up even further and further. And it seems like the trajectory towards social media has been like this increasing atomization of all the moments in our lives trying to just, um, yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. And, and I mean, I think like when we're thinking about like our spiritual formation and stuff like that, like you just said, um, you know, the things that we do do something to us, you know, and when we're looking at social media and when our smartphones and technology give us access to be able to do that, you know, hundreds of times a day. Like, I think I was, I was looking at a study. It's like the average person or like maybe Apple released data from a few years ago. And it was like the average person unlocks their phone through face ID like 2,500 times a day, you know, Goodness. which is yeah. insane. You know, yeah, so it's like you're one picking- of the most shame inducing things Apple did was started sending these weekly screen time reports. Oh, yeah. So like every, every Sunday. I think Monday morning, it tells me I spent like four hours a day on my phone. And I even noticed like the weeks that I spend more are the weeks that I feel like less good about my life. And then the ones where it's like my screen time's 30 minutes to an hour, I reflect and I think, oh, that was actually a really good week for me. Right. Right. And it is hard because I feel like you know, we're kind of hinting at it right now, but our, our relationship to phones and devices and um, in turn our relationship to social media and those kind of digital social media relationships, like it's one of those things I feel like you more and more, especially recently I talked to people and it's like, I know this is not good for me. Whereas, you mm-hmm. know, a few years ago, people would have been like, ah, well, you know, like there's some good, there's some bad. It's kind of like anything else. But it seems like increasingly more and more people are like, yeah, I really need to limit what I'm doing with this or I really need to consider doing this less, but I just, I just can't, you know, um, which is like a sign of like addiction, you know, um, mm-hmm. or at least, yeah. or at least a bad habit, mm-hmm. I would say. Um, I think there's a difference between something that's habitual and something that's addiction, um, but we could uh, parse that out uh, another time. But yeah, it is hard. I mean, and what are your thoughts on that? Because it's like, you know, on some ways you're right. You know, you, you pointed out like we can use our, our, our technology here to maintain relationships from a far distance, you know, that um, previous generations just wouldn't have been able to easily do. I mean, I think mm-hmm. about like um, Abigail and I's nieces, uh, we can see posts and videos sometimes of like what they're doing. Uh, and that's really great for me because otherwise I wouldn't be able to at least have like a small window into what they're doing. But man, that's such a small part of what I see on there. Whereas like, I feel like personally it's like 90% of the more stuff I see is like a lot of stuff that's tribalization over any subject mm-hmm. um, or even just um, corporate marketing trying to get me to buy mm-hmm. something um, and just the overall kind of, cause I kind of fall in that category too. You know, I'm, I'm touching my phone all the time. I'm reaching for it. I feel those phantom vibrations, you know, um, when it's not mm-hmm. going off, I still feel the alerts. Uh, what, what do you, what do you think about that stuff in regards to, how ethically, you know, we should be engaging with this stuff. Yeah. I think when we talk about the sense of like, I need my phone, there's two ways that we can think about that. I think it is true that in almost all cases, you do need a phone to be a participating member of like public society at this point in our, in our world. Uh, I remember even doing um, like missionary work a few years ago. I'd go to countries where just people lived in poverty and yet everybody had a smartphone. Um, 
but it in a lot of ways it provides security it provides information um it provides communication i uh, i can't i don't think that i can't remember the last time i like did a job or school application that didn't require me to enter my email and phone number um and i access those things through my phone so I, there might be like ways around not having a phone but i don't even know what they are anymore so i think it, it's okay to admit that in a lot of ways we need our phone um, but do we need it for all the things that we use it for, or do we need to be so engaged and attached to it? Um, no. And we need to figure out how to ethically use our phones and what ethics means for a Christian and how to use that wisely as we navigate a world where we have phones. Um, I, I don't think we'll have these sort of technologies, you know, and eschatologically, like, you know, after the consummation of God's kingdom and our resurrection. Um, but in the meantime, we really need them. Um, and so let's think about how to use them wisely uh, as Christians. And I think that can lead us into maybe a conversation about kind of broader ethical approaches and then narrowing it that down um, and seeing how these are going to play out for our use of technology. Yeah. Drill down on that a little bit more for me. Okay. So um Let's take a step back and get a little bit more abstract. Uh, approaches to ethics. Um, there are many people specialize in ethics, um, and even Christians specialize in theological ethics. And I'll explain more about what I mean about that later. Um, and there's a lot of secular theories about it, um, but I want to concentrate on a few that are more or less kind of associated with Christianity or theism more broadly that kind of are live players in the discussion right now. Um, so the first I want to talk about is a view known as utilitarianism. So you'll see this um, is prominently in the work of uh, John Stuart Mill, but then also the Christian philosopher, William James. It's a view that claims that um, our actions should be morally judged by their outcomes. Um, so what's morally relevant to whether I did this or that is the results that come from it. Um, in other words, it's kind of a ends justify the means sort of morality. Now, that might immediately sound like it's very much not compatible with Christianity. And I think that's right. But also think about how prevalent that is in our just everyday like moral reactions. Um, if you ever talk to like a Christian book publisher, right? You ask them, why do you, why do you publish the stuff that you do? Uh, it's usually because it sells and it makes money and it increases the uh, profile of that publisher. It's not really because it was like substantive or good. Um, and I think that's just kind of a feature, especially of like American life, just this pragmatic idea that like, if it works, it is good. Um, I won't even get into how that plays out in politics too. Cause that'll get that. You can do that on another podcast. Um, Man, maybe we'll, if you guys want to hear Randy come back on the podcast and talk about that. You just let us know in the comments and we'll see if we can get him back on. <laughs> yeah. Um, but so there is something really actually insightful about this view. It does highlight the importance of considering the effects of our actions when making difficult moral decisions. Um, in other words, like it doesn't tell us the whole story, but it tells us something really good. It take it makes too much of a good thing. Um, but like, I said, like the reasoning is intuitive, and I do think we need to consider those when making decisions. So, what am I when I post something online or I make a use of a particular technology? What are the immediate ramifications for me and my community, and what do I foresee that down the road? Um, but 
just some common criticisms criticisms of this approach. Uh, it seems like it can be used to justify horrible actions toward minorities for the good of majorities. So things like slavery and segregation were often argued for on con- uh, utilitarian lines that if we oppress a small group, um, we can benefit a larger group. Um, it also seems kind of arbitrary because I don't know what it means to like produce the most good for the most amount of people because people have very different conceptions of what's good and what makes them happy. Um, right. It's and, like who gets to decide the scoreboard or the scorecard. Yeah. yeah. And it, and what counts, have, what counts as a good action and then how many quote unquote good points does it count for? Yeah. Like, and they'll like philosophers that promote this. will talk about like happy points. Right. Like, like this, this action produces this many happy points, but I'm like, okay, if the goal is to like produce happy points, then like just plug me into like a matrix style, like computer simulation and give me all the good stuff mm-hmm. um, because that's all that matters. But that's clearly just not, not good. I don't feel like for your audience, I really need to get into why that seems problematic. Um, and then the other issue to it too, for it too, especially in regards to the technology debate is this can only make moral judgments retroactively and worse. Those moral judgments can change over time as one action ripples into many. So at a time, like something might seem very good, um, but maybe down the road that technology is used for something evil. So you think about like um, Einstein's discoveries with like nuclear, um, nuclear technology, right? It it was a remarkable breakthrough and like tech, um, nuclear energy is revolutionizing, like, you know, the renewable energy discussions, but it's also used to make nuclear bombs. So, right. So how do we morally evaluate that? Um, it's complicated. And I think, um, this is one of the weaknesses of, of utilitarianism is not really being able to have consistent moral, uh, judgments of actions, but then also not being able to, kind of be prescriptive or establish like a normative ethic because one action in one circumstance uh, might produce a lot of good. And then the same action in another circumstance might not. Um, and so it doesn't really tell us what to do. It just tells us, us what did happen and how we should think about it. Um, but moving on from that, let's talk about another ethical view that this is more common in Christian circles. Um, it's called deontology, um, most associated with the philosopher Immanuel Kant. Um, if you're a fan of the show, The Good Place, uh, one of the main characters, Chidi Anagonia, um, he's yeah. a moral philosophy professor who's obsessed right. with deontology. Sure. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, it's streaming on so Netflix this, if you guys haven't heard of that. Yeah. Um, this is almost like the opposite of consequentialism in some ways. Uh, it's the idea that certain actions are right or wrong, regardless of the circumstances. Uh, so there are universally binding and rationally attainable categorical imperatives um, for uh, acting as a moral agent in the world. So how, um, would you, how would you say that like in, in layman's terms or in Blue Ridge terms? Yeah. So there are, uh, Blue Ridge is where there are rules. There are rules about how humans ought to behave. You have a duty to understand those rules and follow them. Um, so a good example of this is in Kant. He says, uh, you should always act in a way that you wish it was kind of a universal principle. And then you'll kind of establish normative ethics that way. So, so you should do something, 
in a, in, in a way that you think everyone should do it. Yeah. With, so for example, with, like, you shouldn't people. lie because you wouldn't like it if people lied to you. Okay. I'm tracking um, with you. And society wouldn't be able to flourish if people lied. So we established this principle that you should just always tell the truth. Um, and the other thing to keep in mind is that you have a duty to obey such imperatives, such rules. Um, and that duty supersedes any other morally relevant factor. Um, now, before I get into criticizing it, let me just say what I think is really helpful about it. Um, it highlights the role of reason in moral decision making. Um, I think human, you know, humans are rational, or at least capable of being rational and making deliberations about um, moral duties and actions. Um, and I think sometimes that gets lost in the ethical conversation. Um, but I think uh, I think that that's something important that it highlights. Um, and the other thing, too, is it tries to look for non-culturally conditioned standards. So it's not just like what's good in an American context and what's good in a Chinese context or whatever. Um, it tries to look for things that are just like universal across the board. Um, and so in that way, if it was successful, it might like approach a kind of universal ethic for all of humanity. Sure. Um, one of the complaints, though, is that there's a lot of disagreement about what these imperatives and duties should be by very rational and intelligent people. Sure. Um, so it doesn't seem to get us there. Um, right. The other major issue too is um, because it requires this strict adherence to the moral law um, without consideration of other morally relevant factors, you end up in some really dicey uh, ethical conundrums. So for example, we talked about telling the truth um, at least for Kant and some other deontologists, um, you always have to tell the truth, and that means you can't lie even to preserve life. So one of the famous examples is, uh, say, you're living in um, Nazi Germany, and you're a good person, and you're hiding um, Jewish people who are trying to flee the persecution, the Holocaust. And a Nazi comes and knocks on your door and asks if you are harboring a Jewish person. Um, Kant would say but he lived before the Nazis. So like, let's give him some charity and think maybe he would have changed his view. But um, at least his theory would say you have to tell the truth and you need to hand over that person to the Nazis. Um, right. And, and then then there's, so there's the there's the the kind of similar biblical example, right? Where Rahab hides the spies, right? Yeah. And, and she yeah. lies. Right. Um, and you might say like, OK, lying isn't in principle a good thing. But for the morally relevant factors, that was the right choice. Um, and then I think, yeah, Rahab is a really good counterexample to that. Um, but yeah, so that's in a nutshell, deontology. Um, I should also just say at this point, like I'm a master's student, I'm not an, a doctor, I'm not an expert in all these things. So there's much more nuance to all these views and much greater debate. People want to dive into it on their own time. It's all right. You're, um, giving, you're giving all of our listeners really, really cool words that they're going to be able to dazzle their family and friends with. That's cool. Yeah. There's nothing like saying $5 words at a family dinner just to impress people. Yeah. There's nothing like looking over your uncle and saying that was a deontologist thing to say. <laughs> yeah. What'd you call me? Uh, <laughs> Yeah, so let's, this is probably the most, uh, this next one is probably the most popular um, ethical view among Christians. And I th I think people will be pretty, find this very intuitive. It's a view called divine command theory. So you'll find this in folks, historically, William of Ockham, who is a medieval uh, Roman Catholic theologian. But uh, the modern, modern Protestant theologian, John Feinberg, 
um, he's a really prominent evangelical theologian. He actually taught at my seminary um, and retired a couple of years ago. Um, and then a Christian philosopher, I think, who teaches at Baylor, uh, Christopher Evans. Um, but this this theory has a, a long pedigree in Christian history, so it's definitely worth taking seriously. Um, and the idea is that there are these like binding moral obligations. Um, but unlike Kant, this would claim that moral obligations are constituted solely by God's commands. Um, so if God commands something, that makes it good. Um, now, we can't confuse that with the statement that something is good and therefore God commands it. Um, instead, it's once God has told you to do something, that is the right thing for you to do. And therefore, to be a morally good person is to follow through with that. To be a morally bad person is to disobey God. Um, so, in a sense, it limits moral obligation to a single principle. It is always good to obey di- divine commands and because, and that's because whatever God commands is good. Um, now, the strength of this view, um, I think it seems biblically intuitive. God gives commands to Israel. He gives commands to the church. Um, and the default is to obey them, right? Um, we know that God's not a liar. He doesn't command us to sin. Um, so the idea is like, well, God knows best. And he's going to tell you to do things and you should follow through with them because God knows what's best for you. It also, um, it challenges us to submit our standards of moral goodness to the perfection of God. Um, it, I wouldn't say that it downplays the role of human reason, um, or makes us just like kind of non-participants in the moral considerations of the world. But, um, it requires a strong sense of obedience that I think is a Christian virtue and especially like humility to when God commands us to do something that don't, that commands us to do things that don't seem uh, right in our eyes. Um, but there's criticisms of this view, rightfully so. I think it, it might, depending on how you feel about it, it might make morality arbitrary um, because God isn't commanding things due to their goodness, but he makes things good by commanding them. There doesn't seem to be any non-arbitrary reason why any particular command couldn't be different from what it is now. Um, so, for example, we understand that it's good to be charitable to the poor because God commands it. You see this in Acts twenty thirty-five, uh, when the church is told to be charitable to the poor, to remember them in their prayers. Um, but on divine command theory, if tomorrow God were to command that instead we kill the poor, um, this would necessarily be good for humans to do because it's a divine command. Um, and that, like I said, like that none of them would say that God would do that. And there's a lot of sophisticated philosophical arguments why. But I, to to my mind, I haven't found like a non-arbitrary reason for why God couldn't do this or wouldn't do it. Um, but let's move on to a different criticism that I think is more relevant to the conversation here. And it's just that there's an immeasurable number of moral situations that we face for which there's no clear divine command. Um, I'm not going to read scripture and come away with a really clear idea of how much time I should spend on my phone or whether or not I should own a smart home device. Um, how much I should, how much, how much I should be using my uh, car in light of, you know, environmental considerations. We don't have just a long list of laws and 
I think it even gets into some continuity issues between the Old and New Testament. Because if we don't think that we're supposed to just use the letter of the law um, of the Torah for our Christian moral uh, considerations, then you're going to be left with even less. Um, And I do think that that's somewhat probably the proper way to think about our relationship to the Old Testament, too, is to not take that as prescriptive for how we need to act now. Um, But so, yeah, it's just it doesn't seem very helpful for the stuff that we're talking about now. Uh, But again, there are helpful aspects of it. Um, Right, because what you're saying is, is you can't, you can't flip open to Galatians and Galatians is going to say, Hey, if you spend 45 minutes on Facebook today, that's okay. Mm -hmm. Um, Or you can't flip open, you know, to anywhere uh, in the Bible and you're going to see, you know, verbatim line by line, this is the right thing to do. This is the wrong thing to do in regards to any, any, issue so to say that we might face in modernity yeah and like you you know you do get good stuff from the law like don't kill don't steal don't covet your neighbor's wife like that's all really great stuff but that only that doesn't apply to the like all the moral considerations that we have so by all means like use the law trust god but uh understand that you're gonna have to exercise reason and maybe that reason is informed by the law but it's not we we just don't have like a long list of dictates that are sent down from on high to guide us in everyday decisions. Um, sure, we're, we're I, working off like the the principle, so to say. Yeah. Like scriptures, yeah, and scriptures I, gives us these principles. Another thing too, where I think there's a really pastoral consideration here for how we interpret scripture. And it's interesting, uh, this actually overlapped with one of my other major research interests, which is uh, Anglican church history. Um, just being an, an Anglican myself, uh, I read a lot in that field. Um, there, So, there's kind of a famous Puritan versus Anglican debate in England in the 17th century. And the Puritans were of this mind that uh, we need to actually ground every single thing we do in the words of scripture. So basically um, the idea that I can't do anything in script unless scripture demands it. Whereas Anglicans and a lot of other theological traditions would say, no, that's not exactly right. You shouldn't do things that contradict scripture. Um, and a really famous Anglican theologian who laid into this argument, uh, a fellow by the name of Richard Hooker um, in the mid-17th century, um, he identified that when you tell people that you need to get every single moral and religious principle as a dictate from Scripture, like, this is what I do and this is the proof text for it, um, you're going to lead a lot of people to skepticism about the sufficiency of Scripture when you take that approach. Um, Because they're going to come to the Bible and then leave, not really sure how to apply it to their lives, if that's really what you're looking for. Um, So it's a a hermeneutical issue um, that's, you know, probably a much wider discussion to have. But um, the point is just we, I'm struggling to put it clearly into words, but um, don't don't go looking to scripture for a proof text for every single thing that you do rather use the wisdom of scripture. Um, and like, you know, the, the yeah. Um, sorry. Yeah, I mean, no, yeah, no, it's like it, you know, when you, when you put it that way, it makes like a lot of sense, you know what I'm saying? Like, um, we know that 
our our body is comprised by cells. You know, we know this from from biology. You know, um, but you're not going to be able to flip open the Bible and read anything about the cells mm-hmm. that, are, that are that are in your yeah. your body explicitly. You know, it's not like you can mm-hmm. open to lamentations and there's a discussion on uh, what red blood cells do and what white blood cells do. That's not the goal mm-hmm. that it's trying to get across uh, from mm-hmm. you in that. And uh, I know that's not necessarily an ethical example that I gave uh, right there, but I mean, you're not going to be able um, to find really, I guess what we're, what we're kind of talking about today is, you know, how much time should I let my teenager spend on their iPad <laughs> every day? Like, mm-hmm. like you're saying, like you can't yeah. just pull out, uh, oh, you know, Philippians chapter three says, once you go over 60 minutes, that's too much. You know, you have to kind yeah. of, like you said, we have to use our reason um, based off of these principles and things that we're discovering in scripture to draw a logical conclusion uh, about that. Mm-hmm. And there can be um, some discussion about maybe the best way to do that. So I think maybe that could be a good uh, kind of segue back into um kind of how we began our conversation. So just to quickly recap, we talked about three kind of approaches to ethics, right? So we talked about utilitarianism, uh, and then we talked about deontology, uh, and then we talked about divine command theory. Um, so, and then you gave some examples of that and then some criticisms kind of of each of each view. Yeah. Um, so when it comes to like whether or not a believer should engage, um, you know, we've been using uh, the example of the phone and social media, you know, a lot. Uh, on here um we need to consider like which approach i guess uh that we're taking um but i think it's even further than that as we begin to talk about um things like artificial intelligence uh and then what role that plays in our personal lives and in society Mm -hmm. and in the the different levels of society yeah um yeah that that's right that's a really good summary of what we discussed so far um so now which one should we employ? Sure. I'm going to, I'm going to say, well, not really any of them, uh, take them for what they're worth as ethical tools, but there's a better way forward. Um, and let's get into that, uh, more and then flesh it out in terms of, uh, how it's going to be relevant to technology. Um, so there's this much more historic view. It predates the Christian tradition, but definitely has a big, uh, is definitely like co-opted by Christian theologians is a really helpful way of thinking ethically. And it's called virtue ethics. Uh, so Aristotle, the Greek philosopher is really uh, kind of considered like the father of this tradition. But then Thomas Aquinas is big on this. Um, also Arthur Holmes, who taught philosophy at Wheaton College, which is an evangelical school um, in Illinois. Um and this is a view that says that's not so much concerned as what we do, but more concerned with who we are. Uh, character is the morally relevant factor here. Who we're becoming as people rather than just the distinct actions that we do in the world. Um, so in criticizing the other theories, virtue ethics identifies that somebody can follow all these rules or meet all these standards while remaining a bad person and doing bad immoral things or unwise things. Um, so for example, like I might limit my social media use to 45 minutes a day. But if all I do is just retweet nasty things on Twitter and do awesome theological dunks on my rivals, um, I've been a bad person, even though I've kept my social media use pretty restricted. Yeah. If you use it, if you use it to slam other people, to put them down, to, to stir up controversy in your community, even though you've limited yourself 
to a certain yeah. usage. You and, used uh, to all 45 minutes add, badly. Like, nobody from your church should follow me on Twitter because I've definitely been guilty of this. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so, yeah, so the emphasis then is uh, cultivating a moral life. So a, like a good or bad moral character. And the way we do that is by forming good or bad habits. Um, and by acting out of these habits, we become ethical agents in the world. Um, so basically we kind of, the idea is like you can, you form habits through your actions and habituated goodness becomes virtues. Habituated badness becomes the opposite vices. Um, and humans seem to act very habitually. Uh, we don't always like critically think about every action we do, but we act by instinct. But Aristotle and then all the Christians that appropriated this view, they said, um, you know, there's really, there are strategies that people can employ to form their habits in a positive direction that contributes to their flourishing and the flourishing of their communities. Um, so, and then the other thing too is virtue ethicists. They want to maintain what's called the virtue of prudence or practical wisdom. Um, and this is the idea that once we become virtuous people, uh, we can know when to deviate from what are normally taken to be uh, moral laws or rules. So it doesn't disagree that there are like standard moral um, obligations that people have. For for example, going back to the deontology thing with lying, it, a virtuous person does tell the truth, uh, but they're prudent enough to know that it's okay to lie to preserve life. And that doesn't mean lying is itself good, but there's just a lot of morally relevant factors that contribute to what's the best thing to do in that situation. And even sometimes like the best thing we can do isn't a good thing, but it's a choice between um, greater and lesser evils or yeah. Um, but, and then like the way, like we identify these virtues, there's a cu couple ways. Some will look to stuff like natural law, which we won't get into. Um, but another thing is identifying exemplars or key figures um, or like kind of the virtues that are embodied in our customs, the customs of our community and the traditions that we live in. Um, so like if you've ever been in a church and people kind of point to different lay leaders or pastors as like moral exemplars to follow, kind of what they're, I think they're identifying is that these are virtuous people and you need to imitate your life after them in some respect. Um, so, right. Like, and you see this in Paul, right. He says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Um, and the idea is like, well, by following kind of the behavior of Paul, eventually you begin to act like Paul, who was, I think, understandably a really good person after his conversion anyway. Sure. Uh, but um, now let me say what I think is the criticism of this. Um and it's like, how do we identify what virtues are really good? Because what counts as virtuous in some cultures um, isn't virtuous in others. So, for example, some places it's virtuous to be uh, tribalistic or anti-intellectual or misogynistic. And um, but some they'll be enshrined as virtues that people need to follow or should follow. Um, whereas maybe in the West, we uh, have more... Uh, uh, like liberal or egalitarian virtues, um, take that however you want. I don't mean it in like the theological sense. Um, and so I, what I want to kind of carve out is a theological, uh, a theological account of virtue ethics, um, where like we're asking the questions of how does the biblical story, our place in the redemptive work of Christ and the community of the church 
um, shape our ethics. In other words, as we're living in this space between the redemptive work of Christ and the eschatological hope of consummating his final work, um, what does it look like to be a good person who lives in a world that's kind of in this, um, as N.T. Wright would say, already not yet? Sure. Just quick, quick time out for you guys that are listening. So when Randy's talking about um, the the eschatological consummation uh, of our hope, um, like we were talking, joking about using five dollar words earlier, all he's talking mm-hmm. about is the time period of right now, the present moment that we live in, uh, to where we're working towards uh, eternity with God. However, that um, is going to play out. So if you want more information on that, check out our uh, couple. Uh, episodes we did at the end of season one. What are the end times part one and two? Uh, you can learn all about fancy words like eschatological <laughs> to impress your uncle with. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Eschatology gets weird. Uh, I would definitely trust David with that conversation though. Yeah. So, uh, sorry, I didn't, I just wanted to quick, take a quick time out right there oh, to good. define what that term meant really quick. But, um, but yeah, you know, as we're beginning to think about that and, and in, in regards to, you know, what does it mean for us to to engage with these things uh, as we're living in that tension of, of the already and the not yet, as we're thinking about, um, you know, being a believer and being a part of, of a community uh, and engaging with our neighbor uh, and engaging with ourselves and our life with God ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think what then what we aim for is to display um, distinctly Christian virtues. Um, and let me take a cue from scripture and say in first Corinthians 13, kind of the three key virtues are identified as faith, hope, and love. Um, and I take this to mean faith in the promises of God and his revelation, hope that he will fulfill those promises and heal the world of all sin and love of God, neighbor and self that is informed by the Christian story. Um, and I'm picking this up from uh, figures. Um, it, maybe people haven't heard of these, but they're really great resources to go to. Uh, Oliver O'Donovan, uh, Nicholas Wolterstorff, and then a current professor of mine, uh, Felipe Duvail. Um, in fact, a lot of this is just like ripped off of my class notes from him because he's brilliant. Um, hmm. um, but anyway, yeah, so it's like, what does it mean to um, have faith, hope, and love in a world that's increasingly invaded by technology and we make use of these things. And I think we need to, we've talked about how there's good and bad things about technology. Um, so I think we need to talk about um, what does it mean to love technology rightly such that we don't misuse it, but use it to form ourselves uh, to conform to Christ's image. Yeah. I think that's um, kind of, a little bit where I was gesturing towards in the beginning. Um, because like I said, I just, I, the, the way that we use technology, it does form us. And anyone who thinks that they can interact with uh, technology and that it's kind of a net neutral, I think you might be kind of kidding yourself, especially because some of the ways that some apps and things like that are intentionally designed to keep your mm-hmm. attention focused on the app uh, mm-hmm. on there. You know, I was just um, talking to someone about this yesterday, you know, even the way that, you know, we refresh our feeds on programs mm-hmm. like Instagram and Facebook and, and Twitter. Um, and even like, I think Robin hood had this feature on there for a while too. And Robin hood's like yeah. an investing app, you know, yeah. where you pull down with your thumb 
and then you release it and then your phone has a haptic. So it kind of vibrates a little bit and then you'll get like a spinning motion on there and then it displays new information is extremely intentionally similarly designed to how a slot machine works. Mm, You pull down a slot machine handle and you release it and then it displays information and then it gives you, uh, you know, a neurological hit. Uh, all man, Mm -hmm. I won all man. I lost. Let me try to play, play again. Mm -hmm. So again, that's something that is, that is a habit that's forming us. And I, I, I'm picking up a little bit on, that's kind of what you're gesturing towards with, uh, um, with virtues and vices that these are, are habits of goodness or habits of badness, so to say that are forming, shaping us. Yeah. And And how can we, how can we take an inventory of maybe, I guess, how some of our technological habits and stuff are forming us, how we're interacting with it and then how it's in some ways interacting with us. Am I getting too far off base here? No, I I think that that's a real, really important point. Um, Basically, I kind of just want to say in black terms, I think the virtues of the world enshrined are meant to destroy us, maybe not intentionally, but I think that they deform us into uh, just away from our flourishing, but into like a way of being that the world perceives as good. Whereas uh, Christian virtues call us to love God, neighbor, and self in the right way. Um, And so I want to give something like an account of what this Christian love looks like um, that I think will be very helpful for discerning the role of technology in our lives. Um, So let me jump into that. And then again, if I start using $5 words, uh, feel free to butt in, David. Um, But I want to focus on... uh, a really major figure in the Christian tradition, uh, St. Augustine or Augustine. Um, And he kind of noticed that in scripture, it speaks about the love of God and the love of the world in sometimes really confusing ways. Uh, So let me read a couple passages. um, And you'll probably be able to pick up on the tension that I'm talking about. So 1 John 2, 15 through 17, it says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Now, just a chapter later, John's going to say in uh, verse 3, 23 through 24, um, this is its command to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. And then here's kind of where the tension lies. And to love one another, as he commands us. Uh, the one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them. So there's this tension of like, it seems like we're commanded to love God alone and nothing in this world, but then also we need to love things in the world, like our neighbor. Um, and I think we can extend that to other things, not even personal things too. Um, so how do we resolve this tension? Like, what does it mean to love God and then love the things around me? Um, and Augustine, in trying to sort out this tension, um, he tried to define Christian love as a right ordering of the various and competing goods in this world. So what he wants to say is um, we're really ultimately only supposed to love God. Um, he'll call it the blessed Trinity, God, the blessed Trinity alone. Um, and then he uses what seems like a problematic phrase, but then I'll go on to explain it in softer terminology. We are to merely use the things of this world, the gifts of God. So you're supposed to enjoy God alone and use the things of this world. Now that sounds bad because you should, it seems you don't use like David, you don't use your wife and only love God. You love God and your wife. But when you rightly order those things, 
you do love God more than your wife, at least ideally. Um, but you don't, that doesn't mean you don't love your wife because you love something more than her. Um, yeah. I think it's just so, like an idea of correctly ordering your desires. Yeah. And, and so like newer disorder. translations of Augustine, um, they want to change, they, they change the terminology to be more so what he's communicating um, that we talk about things that we should prefer and things that refer um, in other words, what we enjoy is what we ought to prefer, our ultimate or highest goods, so God alone. Um, but the things that we use are things that refer us to our ultimate end, and we still love those things, but we love them rightly by ordering them underneath our ultimate good. The reason, And the reason for this is actually because um, we dishonor the things that we make ultimate ends that aren't God because we tend to just destroy them under the weight of our own unrealistic expectations of them. Um, I think this is kind of the heart behind idolatry and why people get so increasingly frustrated and yet increasingly addicted to technology mm-hmm. is trying to see it as an ultimate end, a way to realize all the goods that they want in this life rather than seeking them in God. Um, so let me read a quote from Augustine. Um, he says, God does not forbid you from loving these things, but you must not love them in the expectation of blessedness. Rather, you must favor and praise them in such a way that you love the creator. Uh, much of what goes wrong in our ethical lives, including the use of technology, uh, I think is rooted in disordered loves. Right. Uh, and it's express and it expresses itself in this dominating, coercive, and manipulative use of the good gifts of God. Um, and you know, Augustine's writing this like sixteen hundred years before computers, uh, but I think it's still the right way to think about technology. Um, the fact that humans can create these miraculous devices uh, is a gift of God, and we've got to use them rightly. But we need to use them as things that refer us to God, uh, not things that substitute Him as our highest good. Yeah, I just think about like a um, medical technology uh, is mm. amazing, an amazing gift that we have um, that helps, uh, in in my viewpoint, um, alleviate the evil and suffering that sin brings about uh, in the world. And one of the uh, indirect ramifications of sin is, you know, their sickness and their suffering in the world. And technology is a gift from God that I think medical technology helps us kind of alleviate that. And, and if I can even use the phrase, I, I think about it almost like push back evil uh, a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, I think we've also witnessed uh, like abuses of that same technology. You know, people mm-hmm. can use that for for nefarious reasons, um, kind of like you've already said. Uh, is that kind of? Yeah, definitely. That's a really good example. Yeah. So, so keep drilling down for me on what you're saying. Um. Yes. So, so just to kind of emphasize the main point, it's like love you you should love everything but you should love you should love it in the right order put god at the top put your you know your family and your loved ones close to the top um but don't and then you know love technology love the tools of this world um but don't see them as ultimate ends because you'll actually i yeah i think you'll damage your relationship to them if you don't love them rightly um and the only thing that can really sustain the expectations that you have is god himself um, and yeah, that, so that's pretty much what I want to say, or kind of the ethical framework that I want to flesh out. And I know it took us a long time to get here sure. and we've 
thrown some examples out along the way that I hope have been helpful. Um, but if you want, we can maybe try to drill down into some more practical stuff or specific technologies, um, really wherever you want to take it from now, David, I'm fine with. Yeah. Well, one thing I know I wanted to talk about, um, was, was artificial intelligence because, um, like you said, um, we all have had this pocket AI kind of in our, in our pocket, um, since fourth generation iPhone, if you had a fourth generation iPhone, or if you picked up one later that had Siri, um, in there. Uh, but now I think recently AI is really exploding, um, with the popularity of programs like chat GPT, um, where you mm -hmm. can just type, give it a, give it a prompt type of prompt in your computer. Um, and it will spit out something for you. Uh, and I've seen all kinds of examples of people using this is actually like a big ethical discussion too, you know, in academic circles, because, people are just copy and pasting their essay prompts into chat GPT and then asking it to produce a brand new unique essay. And then they just mm -hmm. turn that in and it's like, boom, my homework's done in five seconds. Um, yeah. As you can imagine, like it's horrifying for me as somebody going into academics. Um, I remember when the chat GPT came out, I gave it some essay prompts for uh, like philosophy and theology questions. And I thought, you know, this isn't perfect, but it's like, this is a, a, this is like an A for an undergraduate paper for sure. Right. And um, it's like, that's the thing is it's like, man, in, in just a matter of seconds, you've cut mm -hmm. out, you know, hours, maybe even days of, of yeah. research and work. You've shortcut the process. Uh, yeah. So and um, like I said, like I, to, responses to technology often tell us more about our fears and hopes than it does about the technology itself. Um but let me say something that's either going to make you more hopeful or more scared. Uh, that technology has been around for years already. Right. Um, if, so if you're like in education in any capacity, high school, you know, middle school to college, uh, I can almost guarantee you, you've gotten an AI generated paper at some point that is perfectly capable of bypassing any plagiarism software. The only issue is it was behind a paywall before. Um, so it's harder right. to get to now it's just free online. We have chat GBT, but, um, that's based on older programs, uh, that you would have to buy a subscription for. Yeah. So it's just more accessible now. Mm -hmm. Cause I, I do remember in high school, there was some like chat AI thing. It wouldn't write papers for you, but it was like, you could get on and like talk to this computer and it would talk back to you. And it was very clumsy, uh, 10 years ago, uh, it, it seemed, it was almost like talking to like a toddler that was first learning how to talk, didn't understand what yeah. certain terms meant things like that. But now it's getting a lot more, um, robust, uh, mm -hmm. and things like that. And I, I do think that, um, it's something that quickly, like people can become fearful, um, about, and I don't know if it's something necessarily should be fearful of, but I, I think of it just more of an awareness, you know what I mean? Like, let's not be afraid. Let's just be like alert, I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. um, of kind of what the, the technology uh, can do. And two on the other side, it's like you see some examples of like, let's just take chat GPT for instance of what it can spit out. And it spits out, like you said, like, Oh, I could probably get an a on a college paper. Um, but then I see other people who are like, uh, this technology is kind of like, a you know, um, to use, they say it in a lot more colorful language, uh, than I'm going to say here on our podcast, but they basically call it like, like a bullcrap generator uh, mm -hmm. on yeah. there. So I think there's a range of things. Cause I mean, I even think about like when Siri first came out, it was um, wildly underwhelming <laughs> the way yeah. that they uh, were utilizing it. And there's even times like 
um, when I, I don't know about you, but nothing makes me more frustrated than when Siri doesn't understand me or when it does something that I don't ask it to. So yeah. like you're saying, maybe that says a lot about yeah. me. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think too, this maybe get into a whole other area, but the way that we personalize our technology, like right. I have this expectation for Siri to respond like another human. Sure. <laughs> but, sure. um, yeah, but I, and like the important thing too to realize about like ChatGPT and other AI programs is like they they spit out interesting and creative stuff, and also uh, bullcrap, to put it mildly, because it doesn't it doesn't understand the things that it says the way like a human does. Like it basically like the way an AI works is it has like it has a task that it's designed to do and then a big subset of data to create original ideas um out of that um and so what chat gbt does is it kind of just performs billions of functions and uh internet searches to look for like similar prompts to what you put in and then try to like replicate a response based on that so i remember one time like putting in uh tell me like how I should think about egalitarian complementarian debates. And it gave this like nice five paragraph essay and it, it cited uh, Denny Burke and Patrick Schreiner who are two complementarian theologians. And then uh, Christian, Christian Dumais um, and some other theologians who are popular in the egalitarian camp. And it's right. Like that's really impressive, but it didn't think about it. It doesn't have a feeling about that debate or any investment in it. Cause there's no like, mm, uh, it's this is kind of an imprecise term, but there's no mind behind it or intentionality. Sure, sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a common um, misunderstanding. I, I was just reading an article about this the other day about how like computers don't work like our brains do, uh, and to mm-hmm. think about it like that is like a very popular metaphor. Mm-hmm. But what this guy was arguing against is actually a very misleading uh, metaphor because um, our computer computers and brains actually operate. Um, differently when they're looking at data in front of them. So it's actually, Mm -hmm. I walked away from that thinking like, man, God made something so cool when he made our brains. Yeah. Uh, uh, Yeah. Your brain is just, it's not a mushy computer. Uh, It's really a a fascinating and complex thing that's created by God. Um, Yeah. 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 So um, what, what are in your mind, are there any other like ethical uh, considerations or anything that we should be considering as believers when it comes to using artificial intelligence or should we be thinking about it? Um, kind of how we've already said as you know, this is another tool that we could use to bring about good in the world um, or we could bring about bad with it or are there further, further um, ways that we should be thinking about that technology. Yeah, actually I think um, the approach I want to go is to, not go further, but to go more narrow in the questions that we ask. Um, so I think with anything in ethics, or we immediately want to go broader to like, how is the world going to react to this? What do we do with public policy? Um, how do I think of other people using it? And we really just don't have much control over that. And I don't think that that's really where the ethical consideration lies. Rather, I think we need to ask ourselves and our communities, our distinctly Christian communities, how are we going to use this technology? How are we going to react to our members using it? Um, and that might in, you know, inform the broader world community. Um, but we have to sometimes, I think, just be content with knowing that Christians are going to act one way and the world will act another. And that doesn't mean we are retreating from the world. But um, I think it, it starts with us, like on the very like yeah. personal level is yeah, most important. So I want to ask really like three questions whenever I come across new technology. And they're pretty simple. I want to ask, how does this... Re- 
affect my relationship with God? How does it affect my relationship with my community? And how does it affect my relationship with myself? Um, is it a distraction or a substitution from those things? Um, or does it enhance it? Because like we've talked, we talked about at the beginning of the podcast, uh, technology has en- enhanced our friendship in some ways. Um, but I know places in my life where it's been a hindrance. Sure. Sure. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's such a great rule of thumb to think about uh, those three questions in regards to, like you said, any technology could do that. And you could apply that to any of the technologies that we've um, talked about, whether it's smart devices or social media or AI or, you know, fill in the blank, whatever um, that is on there. Um, I, I just, I think it's so important. Again, and I've, I've said it a few times. I'm going to say it just one more time uh, here on this episode is, we just can't, I think we cannot trick ourselves into thinking that we pick up and use technology. We pick up and use our phone. We pick up and use social media. We pick up and use maybe even AI in some ways. Uh, and it doesn't do anything to us that we are the same, uh, on the other side of it. But these things, you know, the amount of time maybe that we're spending on it, like you said, like that has a ability to, to form us into, to who we are. And we need to be thinking about Mm -hmm. how that, affects our relationship with our, with our neighbor and with ourselves and with God and, um, and those things. So I think that was so, so good. So helpful. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, That is a really good point. Um, I can always count on David being so much more pastoral to kind of take these concepts and bring them down to earth. Uh, I kind of just hole up in my ivory tower sometimes and think Man, about it. Well, it takes, it takes both of us, you know, it yeah. takes, it takes both camps because how am I going to lay out so well, like you did uh, a summarization <laughs> of three approaches, three, well, really yeah. four approaches to ethics on there. Although I do have some questions about how immutability lead into divine command, command theory, but we can talk about that another time. Yeah, That's yeah. Some of the stuff I wrote on my master's years, years ago, no one on this podcast is interested in hearing us talk about that. Though. <laughs> yeah. Um, so let me, let me give, uh, like a practical example of an AI technology, um, that I think helps illustrate where these questions can go. And it's, again, I'm not going to get to a yes or no on it. Um, but more of just a thought experiment. Sure. So this is really cool technology that caught my eye a few months ago. It's called Pero. It's a healthcare uh, device for, uh, elders, for senior citizens. Um, and it's act, it's like a really cute, it looks like a baby seal stuffed animal. Uh, but it's a robot and it um, it runs like an AI program um, basically to care for and interact with uh, this elderly person. So it learns the habits um, of the person that it's caring for. It actually like records uh, biometrics that it can report back to nurses and stuff. Um, and it's been just shown to have really positive uh, relational impacts on the elderly who are often, you know, left alone, unfortunately, in care facilities. Um, And so in a lot of ways, like, I just thought this is an incredible technology and like, it kind of replaces animal therapy because there's ethical issues with animal therapy and abuse of animals uh, sometimes. And it's like, well, this is a robot. So it doesn't have as much ethical worth depending on uh, where you go with that. But um, but here's the issue, though, as, as uh, AI becomes increasingly part of the healthcare system, how does that kind of encourage us to break off our relationships uh, with the needy, especially the oh, elderly? Man. Like if we think, oh, there's a personal thing there wow. to care for that's increasing yeah. like their happiness, right? Yeah. Um, maybe I don't need to go visit grandma in the nursing home very often right. because she's already taken care of. Um, right. Oh, man. I've never even thought of that of like 
man, I can farm out my Christian responsibility, my God-given command to care mm-hmm. for the poor and needy to an AI robot. And yeah, and delegating I, like, those responsibilities goes against really the spirit of that moral right, imperative. Where it's right. like it's not supposed to be that you're just providing something for them, but it's your participation in it forms you as a moral right, person. Right. And I think my my gut immediately goes to um it, while maybe a robot can fill those those physical needs, it cannot replace the physical human relationship that our souls yeah. are designed mm-hmm. to uh, yeah, and created for. Man, yeah. that's so and then, good. Like, what a great example. The, the, yeah, the relationship that like that elder might have to the uh, para robot. There's studies shown about like what's the emotional impact before and after it. You know, it's discerned that it. You know, it's like an AI. This doesn't have a para. Like it's obviously a robot, but like online chat programs. This sure. is more probably whether you're talking to a human or a robot. Um. So the the feelings, uh, the positive feelings significantly decrease once you find out that it's not a real person on the other end. And there's even like when people are deceived by this, uh, there's even feelings of shame that come right. up with it. Uh, right. Things that kind of make you feel bad about yourself affecting your relationship to yourself. Um, wow. And so, yeah. Wow. Well, maybe where I'd like kind of like to ant, uh, land uh, here is is really kind of combining a lot of the things that we've talked about um, so far in the technology realm and then kind of talking about ethically how we can produce or not produce, how we can approach those. Um, excuse my error there. Um, and that's algorithms. So algorithms hmm. are, to me, a great example of how mobile smart technology um, like smartphones and social media or even search engines and then artificial intelligence kind of all get wrapped into one. Um, and an algorithm is basically an, uh, an AI program, um, that I, I, I'm probably not putting it in simplest terms. Somebody is going to listen to this. Who's actually like a computer scientist and they're going to send some emails and I welcome those emails about, Hey, you actually <laughs> didn't define this as clear as you could. Yeah, just remember that Pascal quote. You don't have to wait for your knowledge to catch up. Sure, sure. You know, just, just throw it out there. Yeah. Yeah. So like an algorithm, you know, it, it learns things about you. Um, mm-hmm. through, through all of these different things. And then it creates rules off of the things that it learns about you. Uh, and then it operates, um, kind of based off those rules. So I think that, um, out, you know, an algorithm, Google works off algorithms, Facebook, Twitter, all your social media stuff works off algorithms. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, uh, you know, Tristan Harris is, uh, a guy who's kind of become famous or infamous, I guess, depending on who you ask in the in the uh, ethics world of technology. He's not a believer as far as I can tell, um, but is really the guy who's kind of shining the light on like, man, like what these companies are designing this technology to do is to pull your attention mm-hmm. towards it. And they use these highly sophisticated programs to measure all your different interactions. And they design them in such a way to kind of pull your attention uh, onto these programs and to keep your attention on there. And I think where that really got me is I was like, man, there's these like multi-billion dollar companies that don't know me from Adam. They don't care about me and they just care mm-hmm. about mining my attention to try to make money um, yeah. off me because although they're quote unquote free, um, they're still earning money off me through yeah. advertising uh, and things like that. Um, yeah. So <laughs> even to the point where, you know, Google and Facebook and stuff like that will show you different results based on the way that you interact with those programs and even based on 
geographically where you're located at and all those other things. So sorry, I'm going on kind of a long monologue here, but I want to ask, I guess, just kind of closing out what, what your ethical considerations are, are on that. Yeah. Um, I, a lot of the stuff you said actually resonates with a lot of my current research. Um, so yeah, I basically the idea is uh, your data is being commodified. Uh, the data or like the data that you produce your behavior on and off the internet. Even when you like click on something and sign up for a subscription, it says, we'll never like sell your data. It's like, first of all, maybe, maybe not, but even if not um, just the collection of all your various subscriptions tells, um, tells a company something about you. And it used to be before like AI became popular. Um, this would just be like kind of abstract. Like you'd have kind of like an abstract online footprint or profile that was almost meaningless but now with like most of the ais aren't like public facing things you interact with but things that actually organize and comb through data um to kind of actually make like profitable information out of it um and so i think the thing to be wary of is like this is kind of where technology meets economics um where you become sort of you your behavior becomes a product that's then sold back to you um so you kind of talked about like search results if you ever look on netflix um you ever wondered like on somebody else's netflix profile while they why they're advertised like the screen why the suggestions are different yeah the, the well, it's not just different. the suggestions but like so um if i watch stranger things on my profile and then the next day i go to your house and we're going to watch the next episode of stranger things the kind of like makeup of the profile of that show is going to be different oh yeah because, like the the still image it shows you when you're looking at like the description yeah of the show yeah yes, and that's okay. because it's responding to what it thinks you no probably will, will like hook you hook you in oh and that's an gosh. ai for netflix um it's not just a randomly generated image yeah um so i think be very wary knowing that um the habits that you form online are being sold back to you to then habituate you toward a vision of the good life. We talked about the habits earlier, you know, virtues being habituated goodness, vices being habituated badness. Um, The behavior you have online is then used by companies to advertise and recommend things to you that aren't trying to improve your habits, but emphasize them to get you to buy products. Right. Right. do subscriptions and whatever. Right. Um, and they have no interest in your moral formation for the good or the worse. No. No. Um, I forgot who said it, but one of my favorite quotes of all time is social media was not designed for your spiritual formation. Yeah. And it wasn't yeah, even designed like, with It's so input. simple and it's so true. Like yeah. you yeah. can use it for that, but you need to be aware of this and you need to be able to just form. I think, First of all, you need to just be able to form rituals of life that aren't online. Sure. I'm not a big like give up your phone for a fast kind of guy. Um, but I do try to put my phone down for a couple hours a day and just do something. I try not to do my reading on smart devices right. and just pick up a real book. Um, if I can, I try to travel to see friends rather than talk to them because like, I mean, we're talking over Zoom right now. I'm sure in some capacity, like that information is going to end up somewhere else and sold back to me sure, in a weird sure, way. Sure, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I just think about, um, I, 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 Jonathan Hayda is a social psychologist. He writes sometimes uh, in a lot of different places, but I come across his work in the Atlantic from time to time, and I'm not even a regular reader of that. 
publisher, but um, I do like the stuff that he puts out. And he was talking about this thing called frenetic shallowness, um, which is like our inability to like pay attention for a long time <laughs> without <laughs> getting like some type of extreme stimulus in yeah. there and how that's like causing us not to be able to focus on deep work tasks for a long mm-hmm. time. I think it's Cal, Cal Newport wrote a book 2016 called Deep Work. And he talked about how important that is and how we have just completely eroded that away uh, yeah. with with TikTok and, and things like that. And um, yeah, I just find that is counterproductive for your spiritual formation because, man, reading the Bible sometimes requires like a lot of deep work and focus. Like, yeah, not all of scripture is hard to understand, but there are some parts uh, that are going to require you to pay attention for a long period of time before you reach yeah. a resolution. Yeah, and I think we need to right, rightfully lament the loss of that capacity. Um, but now we have to kind of just do the work of like, where do we go from here? Because right. uh, can- I can be really mad that like the kids in my youth group can't pay attention for more than like two minutes or however long a TikTok video is. Yeah. But I got to do something and I got to meet them where they are. Right. And that's such a good word. Try to do the hard work of forming habits with them that will kind of sure. free them from that frame of reference. Yeah. And build back up to. Uh, yeah. No, that's excellent. Yeah. 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 You're right. Cause there is the, we can be mad all we want. Uh, and maybe rightfully so, but where do we go from here? And how do we actually yeah. approach this? Uh, and mm-hmm. that, man, that's so good. Man, thanks for coming on today to talk. Yeah, my pleasure. Uh, thanks. I We talked about a lot today, but I, I really hope that it's helpful for your listeners and for the members of your church. I really had a blast talking about this. Um, yeah. For sure. For sure. It's been one of my favorite conversations, too. It touched on all my favorite things uh, mm-hmm. in there. So, And it's always great to talk with people who are smarter uh, than you are. <laughs> so, And you're definitely more well-versed in uh, moral philosophy and the intersections with Christian theology than I am. Uh, so it's always great because iron sharpens iron. So, and you're a little sharper than me in this one. Something I forgot to mention about uh, Randy's academic bio in the beginning that I want to make sure I mentioned before uh, we stop this call here is he's read all of the Lord of the Rings stuff, which if you know how much that is, that's an impressive feat. Yeah, I, I do have to correct you because like a year ago, they produced a couple unpublished essays in a new volume. I bought it, but I haven't had time to read it. Okay. But apart from that single volume, yes, I have read all of Tolkien's work. Wow. And uh, I am totally open to any podcasts people want to have me on to talk about that too. Gotcha. Man, well, <laughs> man, Randy, you've made like a buy to get back on the podcast like three times in this episode. So maybe. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Three, maybe one I love you. Three. I love the podcast. So. Maybe, maybe people will vote for you to come back on. So. <laughs> Man, well, Randy, thanks so much for joining us today. Guys, thanks for listening to this episode of the RidgeCast. Um, you know, if it was helpful, share it with a friend. Um, let us know if there's something else further that you'd like for us to discuss. Let us know if you think Randy should come back on to talk about one of his other uh, fantastic interests on here. Um, you can let us know uh, in the comments. You can let us know by messaging us on social media. You can email us at info at the ridge.cc. Um, but otherwise, guys, thanks so much for joining us. Randy, thanks one more time uh, for joining us. And uh, we'll see you guys next time. We are out. Hey, thanks for listening to the RidgeCast. If this episode was helpful, please feel free to share it with a friend. For more information about the Ridge, visit us at theridge.cc or follow us on social media at the Ridge CC. See you next time.